As usual, any information discussed in this podcast is not financial advice. All opinions reflect those of the individuals and this podcast is for educational purposes only. You should always read the PDS and talk to a financial advisor who can consider your personal circumstances before you invest. Welcome back to the Alpha Females Invest podcast, two females working in the finance industry searching for alpha. My name is Emily, and today we're excited to bring you the first episode that we've recorded in some time. I would also like to introduce our new co-host, Maddie, who will be joining AFI to help us deliver some amazing new episodes to you. Welcome, Maddie. Thanks, Emily. Really looking forward um, to getting involved with AFI. I've been an avid listener for some time, so it's really exciting to, um, to be joining you and hosting some wonderful speakers. Amazing. And if you like listening to AFI, we would love your support on Instagram at Alpha Females Invest, and you can also find us on LinkedIn. If you want more information about us and our episodes or sponsorship information, you can visit our website at www.alphafemalesinvest.com.au, and please note that our episodes may be supported by our guests. Great. So let's get started and welcome our guest today. Izzy Jensen is the founder and chief investment officer at Kakariki Capital, a specialist fund manager with a focus on carbon and environmental assets. Izzy founded Kakariki Capital after identifying what she believes will be one of the biggest and most important investment opportunities of our time, the decarbonisation of our planet. Previously, Izzy spent seven years at Morrison & Co., a leading global alternative asset manager with excess of $25 billion of funds under management where she was responsible for research and origination in carbon and environmental markets. Izzy has experience across a range of disciplines, including portfolio strategy management and unlisted and listed investment management. Izzy is also a non-executive director of Blue Carbon S2C and a director and the treasurer for the Montessori East Foundation. So welcome, Izzy. Uh, We're really looking forward to, to having you on the podcast today. It should be super interesting. Thanks for having me, Maddie and Emily. I really appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) To get started, we thought we'd ask you a question typical of every previous AFI episode. These have been some pretty good answers. So Izzy, could you please tell us what your most embarrassing career story is? Sure. Um, Probably my most embarrassing career story story would be I had just started working full-time at Morrison & Co in the Sydney office. I started off in their Wellington office but moved to Sydney and I was still living at home with my parents and I someone in the team was leaving so we had a leaving dinner and I forgot to tell my mum that I was going to be home late and then my phone (laughs) and then my phone died and so it got to, I think, like 10 o'clock at night and my parents were like, where is Izzy? <laughs> they called um, the office. No one was answering, obviously, because we were all out at this dinner. And then they decided to go over to, like, my boss's boss's boss, who's, like, the most senior person <laughs> in the office's house. They knocked on his door at 11 o'clock at night and his wife came to the door and was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> And they're like, Izzy hasn't come home. We're just really worried about her. We can't get a hold of her. So then she, like, had to call um, Will, who was, like, out at the thing, and he was like, no, it's okay. Like, Izzy's, Izzy's here. But then after that, 
every time I had to work late, everyone in the team would be like, Izzy, have you told your parents that you're working late? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is because I, I assume you were early 20s at that stage. I was like 21 or 22. Um, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it was super embarrassing. Oh, you have very cute parents. So that's really sweet. That's really sweet. One to remember for sure. <laughs> and every late night in the office afterwards, you're reminded. <laughs> yeah, no. It was definitely a double standard though because I've got three brothers and one of them, like, he used to, like, be, like, uncontactable for, like, days on end. My parents didn't really stress at all. And then me, <laughs> they're, like, couldn't find for a few hours. <laughs> and they're like, where is she? <laughs> oh, it's a really funny one. Well, I'm glad you're here. Safe today with us, Izzy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's jump straight in to what you do because it's really interesting and a topic that Maddie and I care deeply about and also think is super relevant in the context of everything that's going on in Australia and world worldwide around decarbonisation and the carbon markets, um, which brings us to, I guess, why are you passionate about carbon and how did you get into this space? Because it is still at the moment a little bit of a niche area. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, I mean, I think as Maddie said, um, when she introduced me, when I was at Morrison & Co, I led their origination in decarbonisation outside of renewables. So we looked at everything from like green hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, carbon farming, basically just anything that was decarb related. And it was there, I kind of, I guess, fell in love with carbon and environmental markets. For me, I think it was a combination of, I really liked the idea that we're starting to price the positive externalities um, of land and of nature uh, in the fact that it can sequester carbon, it has huge biodiversity benefits, and up until now that hasn't been the case. Um, and then I think what also attracted to me is the fact that it is a nascent market. It is ever-changing, and so it's kind of exciting to go along that journey as the market's developing and trying to figure out where it's going to land and end up. Great. Thanks, Izzy. Um, super interesting career career experience to date and um, looking forward to hearing more about Kakariki. Um, but curious to know your thoughts around like what type of background and experience is required to get involved in carbon investing and the type of work that you do. Do you think that financial knowledge is something that is required? Yeah, I think people can kind of come into the space from two backgrounds. I mean, I don't have a degree in environmental science or in the environment at all. I've got a degree in finance. Um, so I obviously am coming up from more of a financial perspective and then I've learned a lot about the markets as it goes and I'm by no means a technical expert around like how do you specifically measure the carbon sequestration of this specific mangrove tree? Um, <laughs> but I, uh, and so those people kind of tend to come more from a scientific um, background. But I think in terms of investing in carbon markets, it's definitely useful to have some kind of financial background just because in many ways it's the same as investing in any asset or asset class, right? You're just looking at what are the demand drivers, what's the pricing looking like in the market. Um, so I guess financial experience in that sense is helpful, um, but you can also learn that if you come from more of an environmental or sustainability background 
and look at the market. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, look, you're 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 making a market, so um, you know, in a way, it very much falls under under financial, um, typical financial markets as well, um, which kind of brings us to, I guess, the current market landscape that's happening um, in in the world at present, and how that kind of weaves into the decarbonisation and transition story for, I guess, some of our listeners who aren't deep into the carbon markets as much as you are or as much as Maddie and I are, we'd be really interested just to get a a brief overview of a very complicated system. Yeah, definitely. So I think the easiest way to break down carbon markets is there's compliance markets, which are backed or regulated by the government. And then there's the voluntary market, which is um, it's not backed by government and it's regulated or or there's independent third-party crediting bodies. Um, And then the Australian market is this kind of weird quasi-compliance voluntary market because it's a combination of the two. At Kakariki, the way we think about um, the two markets is there's actually quite a big distinction between the two. So compliance markets, we tend to think of like a fiat currency. So the credits or allowances which are issued in those markets aren't actually backed by physical sequestration. So there is theoretical unlimited supply. The government can create as many of those allowances as they need to. Um, they say that they limit it and that they intend to reduce it over time, but there's nothing to stop them from doing that. So in many senses, it's like a fiat currency. In the voluntary market and in the Australian market, every credit is backed by one tonne of carbon that's been avoided or removed from the atmosphere. And so there are physical supply um, slide constraints on that and so in that sense it's more like um, gold or any physical commodity which has supply constraints um, on it obviously in compliance markets on the demand side demand is regulated so it's much easier to forecast demand there whereas in the voluntary market um, demand is in its name voluntary um, but more and more what we're seeing is more and more companies are making voluntary commitments and they're now being obligated to um, keep to those commitments or targets, which means that while it's still called the voluntary market, it's not really voluntary anymore. Great. Thanks, Izzy. That was a, that was a really helpful overview, breaking down such a, such a complex topic. Um, Maybe it might be helpful to, if possible, kind of, explain what a carbon credit actually represents so perhaps in terms of you know air travel emissions or something a bit more um something that our listeners can relate to a bit more easily yeah definitely I I think um before that it's probably worth um pointing out that there's a bunch of terminology which is used interchangeably so like carbon credit carbon offset carbon unit carbon allowance and they all theoretically represent one tonne of carbon that's been avoided or removed or one tonne of carbon that's been paid for. Um, in terms of what is what does one tonne of carbon actually represent? Um, so as an example, 10 trees in a year will likely sequest one tonne of carbon. There's a whole lot of assumptions that go into that um, around species of trees where the trees are and stuff, but 10 trees uh, will sequest one tonne of carbon. Five return flights um, from Sydney to Melbourne is equivalent to you emitting about one tonne 
of carbon uh, from your travel emissions, or it takes out one ton of carbon to produce 10 kilos of beef. Um, so, I mean, those are kind of a few different Thanks. metrics to try Thanks, and make Lee, it that's, understandable. That's definitely helpful. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really useful. So you kind of touched on it just then, but you said there's maybe slight differences between you know, all the different terminologies. So specifically, I mean, carbon credit and carbon offset seem to be used really interchangeably. Is there a difference between those two concepts? So carbon credit is tends to be a catch-all term that lots like carbon offsets, carbon allowances and carbon units will sit under. Um, carbon offset needs to have a physical project sitting behind it to sequester the carbon because if you think about it, you're offsetting your one tonne of carbon that you've emitted into the atmosphere. So you have to have been removing or avoiding one tonne of carbon on the other side. Whereas the carbon allowance, um, it may not actually be offsetting your emissions. You're just paying uh, a price for your emissions, but that doesn't mean that your emissions have actually been removed or sequestered. Uh, from the atmosphere so when we refer to carbon credits we're basically referring to any of those uh, credits so allowances offsets it might be helpful um, to maybe discuss the regulatory environment that's driving the growth of the market in Australia specifically Um, any policy changes recently and just yeah what the what the key drivers in that space might be Yeah, definitely. So as I mentioned, the Australian market is this quasi-compliance and voluntary market. So the safeguard mechanism is the compliance aspect of the Australian market. So any facility in Australia which emits more than 100,000 tonnes of carbon a year is obligated to surrender ACUs to the government or ACUs are Australian carbon credit units um, to the government for their emissions um, which they haven't reduced in line with baselines, which are set with the government. Um, and so that's a legal obligation that they have to do. That currently makes up actually quite a small percentage of demand mm-hmm. for ACUs in the Australian market. The majority of demand is actually coming from the voluntary uh, space. So that's basically companies who have committed to being carbon neutral or net zero. Mm-hmm. And so they're buying ACUs to offset their emissions. So companies say like Woolworths, Telstra, all of those companies, they're actually at the moment um, making up more of the demand side on that. Um, As I said as well, in the Australian market, all credits are backed by one tonne of carbon that's actually been uh, removed or avoided. And there's a range of methodologies which um, that covers. There's been scrutiny of some of those methodologies in the last six to 12 months and so at the moment the clean energy regulator which is the government body which regulates the Australian carbon market they are currently uh, I guess updating um, some of those methodologies and removing them or sunsetting some of those methodologies so there's a bit of change happening on the supply side of the credits and then there's also some change happening on the demand side with the safeguard mechanism. Gosh safeguard mechanism is just a little, <laughs> little bit of a handful there, um, but in in a simple way, it it seems like those large emitters in heavy industrial um, sectors are basically being asked to reduce their emissions in line with Australia's emission reduction targets. And where they're going above um, what they're allowed to, they basically have to um, pay pay the um, the carbon o- oversight. Um, 
is more or less how I'd summarize the safeguard mechanism. Would you say? Yeah, Lizzie? yeah, no, that's um, that's a good summary. I think the there's a few things to note there. One, like one of the changes that came out was a price cap for facilities covered under the safeguard mechanism. So there was a lot of lobbying from like the mining industry and the coal industry, saying it's unfair for us to have to go and buy these carbon credits. Um, particularly with a rising price. So we want to know that we're not going to be exposed to huge financial um, penalties if the price, say, ends up at $200 or $500. So as part of the safeguard, safeguard mechanism reviews, the government came out and said, okay, we'll put a price cap of $75 on carbon credits for facilities covered under the safeguard mechanism. Um, the honest truth is a lot of those facilities covered under the safeguard mechanism, it's going to be really hard for them to reduce their emissions. Like, so some of the companies we talk to at most, they can reduce their emissions by 10%. And that means that they will just continually be going and buying carbon credits to surrender to the government. Um, my honest view around that $75 price cap is that it will be lifted at some point just because to incentivize decarbonization, we need a carbon price higher than $75. But, kind of to appease those lobby groups yeah I mean look I think we could do a we could do a whole episode on the safeguard (laughs) mechanism I mean 75 Australian (laughs) dollars is on a global scale not a huge amount for carbon I'm not sure exactly what the EU carbon market or you know pricing is currently at but I believe it's higher than 75 Australian dollars is that right yeah it's much higher and it's a good point right because as um decarbonisation and climate change is a global problem and more and more countries are trying to push other countries to decarbonise to also protect their industries if they are pushing them to decarbonise. So the EU, which has a compliance market, they have introduced carbon border adjustment mechanisms to not disadvantage their own industries. So basically if we want to export coal from Australia and we're only paying $75 and we're not even paying that today, then we would have to pay the difference between what we're paying in Australia and what the European carbon price is um, basically at the border. Um, And that should theoretically incentivize us to increase the price in Australia because the the Australian government would rather keep that money in the Australian economy rather than paying it um, to the EU. Yeah, I mean, look, it 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 all ties into a conversation we're briefly having offline, but just you know, having a global carbon price is probably really critical as we move towards, um, you know, net net zero. But I guess that that leads us to a question of can we get to net zero without carbon offsets? Because it seems to me that you know, under the safeguard mechanism, you're already skeptical that companies may be able to reduce their emissions, which is kind of a gradual process over time. Uh, so, you know, ca- can we get to net zero without carbon offsets or is it always going to be part of the system? My view is it's always going to actually be part of the system and there's a few things that go into that. So um, a lot of the work that I was doing at Morrison & Co looking at these uh, lower emissions technologies as part of decarbonisation we're a long way off from having those technologies either be commercial or viable at scale. Um, And until we have those lower emissions technologies, we're going to keep emitting uh, carbon into the atmosphere. I think like it's unrealistic that we're going to shut down all the coal plants in Australia. It's unrealistic that we're going to stop flying internationally or domestically um, on flights. And so we're continuing to emit carbon 
into the atmosphere beyond our carbon budget and we've now reached the point where we need to remove a lot of carbon that we've emitted into the atmosphere. And so we need to remove that and we need to incentivize, uh, I guess, the world to remove it. And the way to do that is through carbon credits or carbon offsets where we're paying people to remove it. Then there will always be sectors which um, we might need, but there is no viable low emissions or net zero solution. Um, and so, and most companies will always have a small bucket of residual emissions that they can't um, eliminate anyway. So there's always going to be a role for carbon offsets. In the short to medium term, the role for them will be quite large. But hopefully, as we get closer to 2050, the role for them will become smaller and smaller because we will have decarbonized a lot of those sectors and industries which are hard to abate currently. Thanks, Izzy. Um, and I guess given the large role that carbon offsets and credits will be playing, particularly in the short to medium term, would it be possible um, for you to please provide an overview of the different types of standards of carbon credits and maybe um, a discussion of the quality of, of different carbon credits? Yeah, definitely. I think I should just add one more thing there, though. Um, just back to the I, – I, sometimes people accuse carbon credits of – enabling companies to kind of kick the can down the road and not decarbonize. The truth is it, carbon offsets or um, nature-based carbon as a solution can only ever sequester 30% of global emissions. So it can, it can only ever be part of the solution. It's not the solution. So we do need to focus on those other technologies. Um, it's just that it's going to make up a larger percentage of that solution uh, in the short to medium term. Onto kind of the different quality of credits and standards. So, uh, if you look at the voluntary market, um, there's four main crediting bodies there's Vera, Gold Standard, the American Carbon Registry, and the Climate Action Reserve. There's a whole lot of other crediting bodies out there, um, which basically they have the rules and the processes and the methodologies around if you want to. Um, generate carbon credits, but those four are the largest in terms of the number of projects and the volume of credits that they're issuing. And they're all independent, um, not-for-profit um, systems, and they've been around the longest, I'd say, and they all have slightly different, um, I guess, uh, they focus on slightly different areas or different qualities um, about them, Vera and Gold Standard are the largest and they're global um, and they'll have their own methodologies and sometimes they'll have competing methodologies. So to give you an example, there's a methodology for cook stoves, which is basically putting clean cook stoves in developing countries. Vera has a methodology and Gold Standard has a methodology. The market consensus is that Gold Standard's methodology is better than Vera's methodology. So it tends to be if you're a project developer and you use Vera's methodology, your credits will trade at a discount to credits which um, are issued under gold standards methodology. Um, there's, I should probably go back up another level. So basically <laughs> the way their methodologies are broken down is they have nature-based um, methodologies or project types, and then they have technology ones. So nature-based is things like doing environmental planting, so going at, or afforestation, so going out and planting new trees where trees have been cleared before. It could be going and doing... Um, restoring mangroves where mangroves have been cleared or had a dieback event. There's also Red Plus, which is basically protecting existing rainforests um, 
from being cleared. Then on the technology side, you've got everything from like um, efficient cook stoves, replacing LED light bulbs. Um, a lot of those methodologies obviously are only valid in developing countries. Um, mm-hmm. Like direct air capture, biochar. Um, so there's a hu- hu- huge, um, I guess, range of methodologies, but the bulk of credits um, historically were issued from renewables projects, renewables projects in developing countries. Though that um, methodology is being phased out because it's no longer additional. Um, it's probably worth covering a carbon credit needs to be additional. That is the carbon sequestration or removal or avoidance would not have occurred if it weren't for the revenue attached to the carbon credit. Um, and more and more um, credits are being issued for nature-based solutions like Red Plus, uh, afforestation and the like. Yeah, that's there's a lot of projects there and lots, lots of different methodologies. Um, so I guess, and, you know, you brought up the principle of additionality. There's also the principle of permanence as well in, in the offset market. Um and I guess there seems to be a lack of standardization or acceptance of, of what this all means across the globe. So does that bring us to a point where we need more regulation in the market? Is that is that something that the offset market requires? Because you do hear and there is a lot of negative press around the use of offsets. And I think a lot of that could relate to lower quality projects, which under a you know uniform standard perhaps we don't need to have these lower quality offsets. Yeah, I think it, it's, I mean, carbon market's complex and they're evolving and which makes um, it hard for them to, uh, it makes it hard for the market to address all of those problems at once. Mm-hmm. So there's a few, I mean, there's a whole range of criticisms that um, happen on the, in the carbon market. One is that it's, some carbon projects might be over-crediting or under-crediting. Crediting. What does that mean? It means that for that for a project, the carbon credit might not actually represent one tonne of carbon that's been avoided or um, removed. Why does that matter? Because if you're Coles or Woolworths on the other side and you're buying those carbon credits to offset your emissions, if the carbon credit only actually represents 0.8 tonnes of carbon, then you should be buying 20% more to offset your emissions. On the supply side, though, it is really hard. Um, it will improve because with technology um, and the like, but it's carbon isn't a perfect science, right, in the same way that it's very hard to measure emissions 100% accurately. So at the moment, say in Australia, a lot of the methodologies are model-based. So there's models which basically forecast what the estimated carbon sequestration is. And assuming you hit the whole lot of criteria or meet those criteria you get issued a certain number of credits that means that some projects are over crediting and some projects are under crediting but net net it should be the right amount of carbon um and my honest view is that we're never going to get to a carbon market where every single credit we can 100 percent know represents one ton of carbon um and carbon markets won't be able to scale if that's what's required because we just don't have the resources to get auditors out on the ground to do physical measurements of every single tree to make sure that tree is sequestering the amount of carbon that it says it is. There are definitely improvements that um, we can put in place and we're always better, I think, to be more conservative um, than not. So 
the biggest criticism is there's two types of carbon credits or carbon offsets. There's avoidance and removal. So removal is very clear. Like you've planted a tree, it's very clearly removed a ton of carbon from the atmosphere. Avoidance methodologies are avoidant uh, methodologies like Red Plus or Savannah burning, where basically you're so for Red Plus you're saying this project area or this forest is at risk of deforestation because the local community who lives in that area, that's their source of income. And we know that every year they, through slash and burn or just through um, clearing activities, they on average have cleared 100 hectares a year. And so that's basically the assumption that you put into the model around how much emissions are you avoiding by stopping them from clearing that. But that's a counterfactual methodology. We'll never actually know if they are if they were going to clear 100 hectares, and that's where the criticism comes into the market. It's around was it going to be 100 hectares or 80 hectares or 50, or was it going to be 500 hectares? Like we don't know. Um, and so there does need to be just, I think, some acceptance that carbon markets aren't perfect, and it might end up being that for corporates who are using it to offset their emissions, they need to either they should be using a certain percentage of removal where it's very clear what the carbon has been um, removed from the atmosphere or um, that we ask corporates to overcompensate so they always have to offset 20% more than their emissions or something. But it's a complicated area and I think if we're looking for the market to be perfect, we'll be disappointed. (laughs) Um, But we do need to improve, I think, the transparency of the market uh, for it to be viable. Great. Thanks so much, Izzy. That was super, super helpful and great, great insights into the, into how complex, um, complex the carbon markets are and lots of different terminologies and acronyms to be navigating as well. (laughs) Um, I think maybe to pivot towards your perspective on investing in carbon markets, we'd love to hear a bit about your investment strategy at Kakariki um, and how you see, how you see carbon as an investment opportunity and, you know, how, how, how can we go long in carbon? Great question. So, I mean, there's a few different ways you can get exposure to carbon markets I mean, part of the reason I set up Kakariki was I was obviously super passionate about carbon markets and I was trying to invest myself and it was really hard Um, and it was also really hard to do um, just kind of like an individual uh, because they're wholesale markets. Um, So, and there's also a whole range of different markets. So compliance markets, uh, you can invest in them. Basically, you're taking a regulatory bet because they're backed by governments and you're basically betting that governments are going to stick to what they've said they're going to do, which is reduce the number of allowances. So the price of those credits goes up. I think that's a very valid strategy. Um, But for me, where we see the most upside um, and also need for investment is in the voluntary market because we think they're the most mispriced. And so the way, there's a few ways you can invest in the voluntary market. You can just buy carbon credits, which have been issued by projects uh, in the spot market. You can do project finance. So basically you're providing the upfront capex, say, to plant the trees. And in return for that, you'll get a percentage of the credits or you'll get a fixed number of credits over a certain period of time. And that's basically how you pay back your upfront 
investment or you can do offtake contracts. So basically you say to a developer, we agree to buy a certain number of credits from you every year for the next 10 years and you might agree at a certain price um, today. Um, and so that's what our first fund does. We basically invest across the compliance market, the Australian market and the international voluntary market. And we do everything from project finance offtakes or just buying credits in the spot market. Another way to, I uh, should say, that can be quite volatile. <laughs> carbon markets are nascent and so carbon prices are moving around quite a lot, particularly as there's market criticism. Um, and so you definitely need to be able to take a long-term perspective um, from that. Our second fund um, that we have is uh, it's asset-backed. So we are buying Australian farmland and then we're developing carbon projects on that farmland with a focus on environmental planting. So that's another way to get exposure to the carbon price, but probably with less volatility and reduced risk because in a worst case scenario, say carbon markets cease to exist, we can sell the land. Um, whereas in our first fund, if carbon markets cease to exist, basically all those credits that we hold and projects that we've invested in, there's not really any value sitting behind them unless the market or the world believes that there is value in a ton of carbon that's been removed or avoided. Yeah, um, I mean, look. Hopefully, it doesn't get to land value. But um, <laughs> on 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 that comment, I mean, we spoke a little bit about pricing, and obviously, CBAM's put you know a, a cap on on the pricing with the potential to increase that cap over time. But I mean, what is the current price of carbon credits, and where do you see it going? Like, what's the what's the upside here? Good question. There's not one price of carbon. Um, so like in Australia, the current carbon price is on average $35. In New Zealand, it's currently $70. In the EU, it's just over €100. Euros. In California, it's at about $35. Like there's no one carbon price. In the voluntary market, you've got some credits trading at $30, some credits trading at a dollar. Um, so a huge spread. Uh, there's a few ways to think about where you think the carbon price is going to get to and across all those markets. One is you can look at what's the marginal cost to decarbonize those industries, right? And so you need to drive up the carbon price to incentivize that decarbonization. So if you look at airlines, their marginal cost to decarbonize is between $300 and $800. So until the carbon price is at $300 to $800, airlines will keep buying carbon credits or carbon offsets. Um, to offset their emissions. And so we know that the market is incentivized to keep pushing that up. On the other side, you so a whole bunch of big consultancy groups like McKinsey, BCG, Bain, they've all done forecasts on the demand versus the supply uh, of carbon credits. In like a worst case scenario, only 7% of demand for carbon offsets will be met. In a best case scenario, it's like 80%. Either way, there's not enough supply to meet demand, so we know carbon prices are going to increase. We're confident carbon prices will get to above $100 or $150 uh, in the medium term. There was an IPCC report which had one forecast of carbon prices out at $12,000, but that's basically at $12,000, almost every single sector or industry has decarbonized because it's cheaper to decarbonize than to be paying $12,000 per tonne. So I don't think we're going to get to that price. Um, 
I can see the price getting in the long term to $500. I think there will definitely be volatility and the biggest risk is snap regulatory, like uh, regulatory risk or governments making snap decisions, which basically changes pricing uh, in the market. I think you'd be getting a few excited people um, at a $500 carbon price. (laughs) And some disappointed companies who have to pay it. That's right. Yeah. Obviously, I'm super high conviction on carbon, but I also genuinely believe we need a high carbon price to decarbonize. So all of that is prefaced on the belief that as a society, we will continue to drive decarbonization. There is a risk that it just becomes too expensive and we abandon um, those attempts. And that's kind of the absolute downside scenario, right, is that we just decide it's too hard. Um, We'll just kind of go forward putting up with more and more natural disasters, um, crazy climate (laughs) uh, and whatnot. I hope not, but (laughs) we definitely need a higher carbon price to... Uh, align with two degree, a two-degree world. Thanks, Izzy. Um, and you've touched on you touched on this before, but it might be helpful to kind of delve into the supply-demand dynamics a little bit more of the different types of credits, particularly within the Aussie market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So in the Australian market, as I said, every credit is backed by a physical project that has either removed or avoided one tonne of carbon. Current or up until now, the bulk of those credits have been like avoided clearing or avoided deforestation. Those credits have been phased out because of um, questions around their integrity and whether or not they were additional. So that's removed a whole chunk um, of future um, projects that could potentially be delivering credits. Going forward, where we'll see credits coming from is likely environmental planting, mangrove projects, and then the um, IFM methodology, which is basically improved farm management or soil carbon and integrating a whole bunch of methodologies into that. Then there's also some more like technical um, or not land-based methodologies like um, uh, landfill gas and the like, but where the bulk of the potential will come from is from nature-based solutions. In the short term, uh, there's currently more supply than there is demand uh, on the market, Um, but that's expected to flip and there will be constrained supply relative to demand and that will obviously push up prices, which then also opens up more supply. So if you say you're looking at a property at the moment at a carbon price of $35, it might not make sense to do a carbon project on that property. But if the carbon price is $100, it now makes sense to do a carbon project on that property. And so then that increases the supply of credits coming onto the market. Thanks, Izzy. That's a good background um, I wanted to, with all of that context now that our listeners have on, on the carbon markets, I wanted to pivot to, to your business, Kakariki. And I guess the first point of call is where did the name come from? <laughs> so Kakariki means green in Māori and it's also the name of a New Zealand bird which 
is becoming endangered because of loss of biodiversity and climate change. Um, so that's kind of the meaning behind the name. It was really hard to come up with a name. <laughs> One of the hardest yeah, things I had to do. Easy. Yeah, <laughs> not easy at all. And and so I guess what was your vision when when you founded Kakariki? Uh, you know, did, is it where you thought it would be, or or where you can get it to? Yeah. So I mean, as I said, like part of the drive, I'm obviously super passionate about carbon markets and believe in them. But part of the driver was I just wanted to invest in them myself, and I realized how hard it was. And so I was like, if I'm struggling, other people must be struggling. So. Um, Initially, I just kind of, I set, you, you have to set up a company to invest in carbon credits. So I set up a company um, <laughs> to invest myself. And then I started talking to other people and they were like, oh, yeah, no, I'd like to invest um, in that. I think ultimately what I would like to do is to bring institutional capital to carbon markets. Uh, it's hard because they're nascent. Um, and so a lot of institutional capital sees that as risky. Um, but that's ultimately what we are trying to do because to scale carbon markets and to help them be part of the solution to net zero, we do need institutional capital um, to come in at scale to those markets. Great. Thanks, Izzy. I love that you set up a business. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy. Like when I set it up, I didn't really think that I'd have to run a business. I just thought I'd be investing in carbon and then I realised yeah. that do everything else, like managing people, boring yeah. admin such an amazing, yeah such an amazing story um and maybe um you, you just touched on how you love to bring in institutional capital um into the funds but maybe um an overview of how people can invest with you at the moment and what your typical client might look like do you need to be a wholesale investor great question you do need to be a wholesale investor to invest um with us. So we currently operate two funds. We've got one which uh, invests globally and across compliance in the voluntary market. Uh, and then we've got our land fund, which is just Australia based. Um, they're both uh, unit trusts. So um, you can invest in them, but again, you do have to be a wholesale investor. And then we also operate IMAs or individual management agreements for investors who want more bespoke portfolio, but that does require a minimum investment of 5 million. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll uh, chat with you offline about my uh, initial 5 million investment. Um, I mean, obviously this is a really compelling investment opportunity. It sounds like you're really across the markets. You've, you've got your finger on the pulse. I mean, it's a fantastic way to get exposure to carbon through, through your funds, Carbon Fund One and Land Generation Fund. Um, but if there's someone listening who maybe thought, okay, carbon market sounds interesting, could I set up my own fund? How, how would you suggest people do that or, or is it really difficult? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I've been very fortunate. I've been supported by a lot of people um, in helping me. I mean, to set up your own fund, you either need an AFSL or an Australian Financial Services Licence or you need to um, be able to sit under someone else's AFSL. Um, but once you've kind of got that legal or regulatory requirement out of the way, um, you can set up a fund, I guess, uh, guess you basically just need to put together an information memorandum, set up trustee uh, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I, the one thing I'd say is it seems daunting, but I'd say go for it. Like the worst that happens is that 
Mm. It doesn't work out, but you'll learn so much along the way, um, which will just be invaluable. Thanks, Izzy. Oh, it's really such an amazing, amazing career career journey. And and maybe with that, with all of the good times at Morrison Co. and building your own fund and creating a new fund to to start um, investing in carbon markets, I'd love to I'd love to know um, any career advice you have for our listeners and or your top career tip. Excellent question. Um... My top career tip probably would be is don't let anyone ever tell you that you can't do something um, or try and talk you out of doing something, particularly if you're a female. Um, Like I had a lot of people, I had a lot of people who supported me, but I also had a lot of people who were like, what on earth are you doing? And basically I, I think like in a nice way but also tr- like kind of creating like fear in me that it was never going to work and that there were all these hurdles uh, in my way. And I think, as I said just before, right, like the best thing you can do is just have a go. You'll learn so much from it um, and you'll feel like you're drowning for a, l- a lot of the time. Um, but uh, it's much more rewarding, I think, to have a go rather than just sit on the sidelines. Yeah, and, and I mean, look, that's a really important piece of advice for particularly for females who often do uh, get less encouraged than than their peers of other genders may may. <laughs> um, so I appreciate I appreciate that advice, and I think it's obviously such an interesting sector. It's going to be increasingly important in an Australian and global context. So we really appreciate you coming on and chatting to us about. It about it and sharing your wisdom um we're really excited for the future of kakaraki and uh keen to see what you do going forward thanks i really appreciate you guys having me on it's been great to have a chat thanks so much Izzy. thanks maddie thanks emily thank you for listening to the alpha females invest podcast if you like this episode we would love your support on instagram you can find us at alpha females invest you could also leave a podcast review but most importantly please keep listening see you next time